Well, uh, last Sunday afternoon, I woke up from my nap with two thoughts. The first thought was, wow, that was a really good nap. I mean, I played in my journal, one of the best naps I've had in a long, long time. And if you don't know anything about a Sunday afternoon nap, well, you don't really know anything. Because Sunday afternoon naps are the best. Now, the second thought that I had when I woke up is, this is strange, I thought about the disciples of Jesus. And I thought how their Sunday afternoon went on that Easter Sunday. You see, I was thinking about their incredible roller coaster ride with Jesus. I was thinking about their ups and their downs, their mountains and their valleys on their journey with Jesus, their twists and the turns that they take. See, we welcome and celebrate Easter Sunday as a high and holy holiday. We look at this day with joy and celebration, and we have all kinds of things planned on Sunday afternoons of Easter that involve good food and and being together and a bunch of other things, right? But have you ever thought about for the followers of Jesus, that Sunday afternoon was a day that was filled with fear and uncertainty until Jesus appears among them. And then their fear and uncertainty turns to speculation and fright. That's right. The first response of the disciples gathered together in a room when Jesus appears to them that evening is fright. They're afraid. Uh, So Jesus spends about, well not about, Jesus spends 40 days on earth between his resurrection and his ascension. And and during this 40-day period, he appears to all of his followers. He appears to the disciples on several occasions. He he has conversations with them. He has meals with them. He he appears to some 500 people during this 40-day period of time. And also in that time, Luke tells us uh, in the God, in Acts in the first chapter that he also during this 40-day period teaches about the kingdom of God. We really don't have any record of that. We know a few things of him being with his followers and his disciples in a in a room and on the side of the lake and know of the resurrection appearances, but there's very few details about all of that. So I was struck, though, when I woke up thinking about the disciples and thinking about how their Sunday, Easter afternoon, evening went, and then I thought about that 40 days. And I thought, wow, something happens in them during that 40-day period. They are changed. They're they're completely different. They are, they are transformed from, from one state, from one attitude to another. It's a fascinating journey if you think about it. You see, the disciples, they, they follow Jesus at the start of his ministry, and then they flee from Jesus at the cross. And then after his resurrection, Jesus begins gathering them together again. He begins calling them one more time, follow me, follow me. And Jesus 
goes out and he gathers these scattered disciples like a shepherd gathers scattered sheep. And I thought, maybe that's what we need right now. Maybe exactly what we need right now is for the scattered sheep to be gathered. Good is not the right word, but something good happens to these followers of Jesus Christ in that 40 days. And I couldn't help but think, how great would it be for us today to spend 40 days with Jesus? So today I want to begin a new series. It's really a mini-series of, of lessons And I want to focus on the experience of the followers of Jesus Christ. I want to look at some connected events, some before resurrection and some after resurrection. Don't worry, we're not looking at all of them today. That show this incredible transformation from where they started to where they launched to bring the message of He is risen. To the entire world. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn to look at our first story this morning in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 6. This is first and foremost in this series, a story of becoming gospel-shaped followers of Jesus Christ. Now our first story is a story of bread and boats. It's a story of frightened and fearful followers. The disciples They're terrified. They're terrified. Now, you know how they say there's a first time for everything, right? Well, this is necessarily the first time, but not necessarily the last time the disciples will find themselves in this position, encountering Jesus and being terrified. Now, if you're looking at your Bibles in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30, we see that this is a moment where, where the apostles have gone out and they have been, uh, this is their first solo flight, if you will. They've gone out and they've been teaching, they've been proclaiming, and the, the apostles return, the 12 disciples, and they tell Jesus everything that they had done and everything that they had taught. You can see how excited they are, and you can see how excited Jesus is, Jessica, to hear what his children have been up to and what they've accomplished. And so they're in this moment where it's supposed to be just this personal moment. All these people, all these people start coming. And, and there are so many people, the disciples in Jesus, they, well, they get into a boat and they, and they go to a desolate place by themselves. Now, if you've ever done any fishing on a lake and, and someone tells you there's a secret fishing spot, when you get there, you realize it's not a secret. That everybody else knows about it, which is why that person told you about it. If there really is a secret spot on a lake, no one's talking about it. But they get into this boat and they go across this lake to this desolate place. It's, it's out in the middle of nowhere and, and, and crowds follow and follow and they're just, they're just amassed by a mass of people. And so in this classic moment, we see Jesus surveying this great crowd and Mark tells us that he has compassion on them as a shepherd has compassion on scattered sheep. 
So the Bible tells us that Jesus sees this great crowd and he begins to teach them. Now, now it also tells us that he begins to teach them for a while, for a long time. So listen, um, you know, when my messages run a little long, it's just because I'm trying to be like Jesus. And, and as long as you're not trying to be like Eutychus, then we're all right, right? Uh, then everything is good. It's, it's getting late. And the disciples tell Jesus, um, yeah, uh, listen, it's, a, uh, it's getting late. And uh, we need to send these people home so that they can get something to eat. They, they have good awareness of reality, but they're unaware of a better reality. So if you'll look in your Bibles in verse 37, this is what Jesus says they should do. I, I love this moment because this is a first challenge of faith. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. So what we know from this story is that this is beyond the disciples' grasp. They have, they have no real idea what Jesus is asking of them here. And of course it would be, right? Listen, we would be in the same boat with the disciples. Let me tell you how this works, right? Go ahead and invite 30 people home for lunch today. And say to your sweetie, hey, honey, can you just whip something up? And she's going to say, yeah, I can whip someone all right. Right? So this is, this is the scenario that they're in. There's, there's this mass, this crowd of people, and, and Jesus says, well, why don't you give them something to eat? This is just so stretching for them. And, and then look at verse 37 again, how the disciples respond. They said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Now, if you've got a really good Bible, you'll have like 20 question marks at the end of that sentence. Because it just shatters their whole understanding or concept of what Jesus is really asking them in this moment. Now, I want you to hear what the disciples are asking of Jesus when they ask him this question. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread for the people. to Here's what they're really saying. Are you serious, Clark? First, it would cost 200 days wages for us to buy enough bread for all these people. Second, there's not a bakery anywhere close that could meet this kind of demand at this hour of the day. Remember, bread is baked in the morning, not in the evening. And third, and probably most important, we don't have 200 days worth of wages to go and buy bread in the first place. Now, listen, these are all reasonable replies, right? So when they're asking Jesus, are we really supposed to go and buy 200 days wages worth of food to feed all of these people? And it's a really reasonable response. When you don't really understand who Jesus is. When you don't really understand his power. Now, look in verse 38 and we'll see the response of Jesus. He says, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. You notice that Jesus doesn't ask them, how, how much money do you have? He doesn't ask them, well, somebody look on Yelp and see if there's a bakery open at this hour with at least a three-star rating. He doesn't ask any of that. He says, well, what do you have? 
what do you have? And so after taking inventory of their supply rations, they come back and say, well, we have about five loaves and, you know, we have a couple of fish. Now, what happens next is one of the more spectacular moments of Scripture. Jesus commands all the people to sit down. He takes the five loaves and the two fish, and he, he looks up to heaven, and he says a blessing. And then he begins to break the loaves, and he begins to hand them to his disciples and the fish. And he hands them to disciples, and he instructs them to hand this out, to pass this out to the crowd. And then if you'll look in verse 42, and they all ate and were satisfied. Look at verse 43. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, one basket for each of the followers, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So if you do the quick math, right, there's a lot more than 5,000 men. All right, this is the scene that sets the stage for what is getting ready to happen. So right after this, in fact, Mark's word in the text is the word immediately, and that's one of Mark's favorite words, immediately, immediately. Jesus makes his disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him back to the other side of the lake to the city of Bethsaida. I want you to see this in the text that Jesus puts his disciples in a boat. He makes them get into a boat and sends them on a journey across the lake. And after wishing the disciples bon voyage, Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. But Jesus is, is drawn to the solitude and to the silence that awaits him so that he can have that time with God. He, he longs to be in prayer, to have this communion with God. And the disciples... They long to make it to the other shore. The disciples long to reach land. They face an unwelcome strain and struggle of a contrary wind. There she blows. From his vantage point, this is crazy. From his vantage point, Jesus sees the disciples. He sees them struggle to get across the lake. The, the wind sweeps across the lake, and the wind sweeps against them. And then if you look at verse 48, you see a really incredible verse. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Ever feel like the disciples? In this moment, hmm? ever feel like you're making headway painfully? I mean, it feels like you're making progress, if you can call it progress, but it, it's painful progress because, well, because the wind is against you. And this is a pretty good metaphor of our experience over the last few, however many months they've been. Because it feels like as a church and as a people that the winds have been against us. It feels like we're making progress, but boy, is it painful progress. As the wind keeps battering against us. Can I, 
can I let you in on something which at first may sound more terrifying, but if you understand who God is, it's more encouraging than terrifying. So here's, here's the big secret of this text. There's something you need to hear that sounds terrifying, but in the end, if you understand who God is, it's more encouraging than terrifying. So here it is. Sometimes the best thing for us is to experience difficulty. Sometimes that is exactly what we need to struggle. To have the wind blow against us. Which is why it's such an important detail for you to see that Jesus makes the disciples get into a boat. He intentionally sets them on a course where they will have to struggle. Now, is this because he's mad or or frustrated? Is it because he needs some me time? Or is this because Jesus loves them? And he wants nothing but the best for them. And he understands that there is a power, there's something to be gained in the struggle, that the struggle actually can serve a purpose in our life to strengthen faith, to strengthen faith. See, because the wind may be against you, because progress may be painful, it's not evidence that God is against you. That's not what it means. If you're going through hardship, if you're going through struggle, it's not because God doesn't like you or is against you. It has everything to do with a God who loves you. And see, here's the problem. Any kind of religious system or religious teaching that's based on earning or deserving salvation, it sells you a false bill of goods. The religious person who believes that they must earn or deserve God's favor always, always, always struggles when the wind blows against them. You see, the reason for this is because a religious person is trusting in their morality. They're trusting in their performance. And so when contrary winds come, it's contrary to their belief to their understanding that they're entitled to a good life because of everything that they have done. I mean, this is the classic case of Job's friends who are telling Job over and over and over again, you're experiencing hardship because you've done something to offend God. And so a religious person who faces such a storm, the inedible result is they're going to get angry, they're going to get bitter, they're going to be depressed, and they're going to be despondent. It's like, well, I have been doing all of this. I put my moral record before you, and I have to deal with this. They just can't square with it because a religious person sees themselves as deserving God's favor. You owe it to me. You owe it to me. I've, I've gone to church. I've done all this stuff, so you owe me a good life. But you need to hear that when you face difficulty as a follower, it's not because you've offended God. It doesn't work like that. Painful progress and contrary winds, hardships, and difficulties in life, these are not signs of God's displeasure in you. This is the terrifying news, but it's encouraging. It's a sign of how much God loves you. He wants your heart 
And he wants your heart so desperately. He wants your faith to be so fixed in him and not on you that he's willing to allow wind to blow against your life so that you will trust him. So that in the end, you will see how really powerful he is. Now, there's an important thing in the text that you need to see, that Jesus sees the disciples struggling from his vantage point against the wind. And he lets them struggle. He lets them struggle. I mean, he sees it. He keeps an eye on them. He's watching them, but he lets them struggle. And the timeline is fascinating. Look at verse 47 again. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on land. Okay, this is timeline. It's evening, right? They're on the sea. He's on the land. Now, from verse 48, we see they're making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, so this is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus sees them struggling, and he waits. He goes. And somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus, it's not until the fourth watch of the night, till this time period before Jesus takes any physical steps toward the disciples. Oh, and it gets better, well, or worse, depending on your perspective, because from verse 48, do you see it? Yeah, he's walking towards them, but he intends to pass them by. They're going to have to continue struggling. Boy, it, it, it sure feels like we've been struggling for a while, doesn't it? I mean, it feels like the shore is just ahead in the distance. I mean, more people are getting vaccinated and, 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 and more restrictions are, are, are being unrestricted and, and more things are opening up. It feels like we're, we're in the starting blocks waiting for the starter's pistol to sound so that we can, that we can resume life as we know it. But here's my question. Did we learn anything? Did we learn anything? I mean, did we draw closer to God? Does our soul ache for the presence of God? Have our eyes been opened to the value and the need for relationships in our life? That yes, indeed, every single one of us, we were not made to be alone. I'm not saying, as I have said in the past, that God caused this virus. But I do believe that God uses any kind of wind that blows against us to show us how good he is. That's the kind of God that he is. That he will take anything in our life, even those things that are against us in our life, to show us how good he is and how powerful he is. So see, a gospel-shaped person understands that life sucks. They do. Wait, can I say that? Hey, Jason, can you edit that out? Okay, let's try that again. A gospel-shaped person understands that life inhales deeply. They do. They, they understand this. They, they know this. But here's what else a gospel-shaped person understands. That the punishment for all the wrong that we've ever done and ever will do fell upon Jesus. It fell upon Jesus. And so God is not punishing us when these contrary winds come against us. God, because he loves us, may 
discipline us, helping us purify our hearts so that they belong to him totally and completely. So while we may struggle and and while God may allow the struggle, a gospel-shaped person knows it's not because God is not pleased with us, it's because he is pleased with us, because he finds favor in us. The God who is for us, the God who died for us, who longs to be with us, is overwhelmingly for us. So Even when the wind blows against our life, God has our equipping and our strengthening in mind. More than that, a gospel-shaped person believes that God will use these winds to overwhelm us with his love. That's his job. To show us how incredibly powerful he truly is. And this is what the disciples missed in this moment. In the boat, the wind sweeps away from them any crumb of understanding of who Jesus is and his power. So listen, we don't need to go looking for struggle, but we can welcome struggle because the goal is that our faith is strengthened. And so if you're struggling right now, if you're making painful progress because the wind is, is beating against you, there's two things you need to know. The first are the words that Jesus speaks to his followers when he gets in the boat. He says, don't be afraid. It's I. It is I. I'm with you. So that's the first thing you need to know. If you're struggling right now and if, if, if you feel like the winds are beating against your life right now, the first thing you need to know is that God has not abandoned you. Here's the second thing you need to know. We're all in the boat with you. We're all in the boat with you. I mean, at the risk of quoting high school musical, we're all in this together. We are. This is what we were designed for. This is what we were created for. This is the genius of the church. We are not alone. We are not alone. You know, the problem with the disciples, if you look in verse 50, is they don't recognize Jesus. Verse 50 says, for they all saw him and were terrified. They saw him walking on the water and they think it's a ghost. And as I said, this is probably the first time that they have this reaction, but it's not the last time because they have the exact same reaction to Jesus in the resurrection. But I want to start reading from verse 51 to close this, and I want you to look at this with me. You know, it's so important for us to see that when Jesus gets into this boat, he doesn't scold the disciples, he doesn't lecture them, he doesn't criticize them. He speaks words of loving, tender kindness to them. He says, it's all right. Don't be afraid. Everything's okay. And then look look at this. They got into the boat. This is verse 51. And the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts hardened. So this is our, our first picture. This is our first picture. Look at another picture next to it. This picture is not very flattering, is it? I mean, it kind of ends on like, whoa. They're utterly astounded. 
They're heart to heart, and they don't understand what's happened. They don't understand the, the loaves, and they don't understand the wind and the power of Jesus. And, and just to be clear, if you and I had been there, we'd have the same exact reaction. Same exact reaction. There would have been one difference. If I had been in the boat with you, I'd been throwing up from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. That's the major difference there, right? But every single one of us in that boat, we would have had the exact same. So there are these moments in the gospel story that highlight the struggle of the disciples to understand. And so their time in the boat, struggling against the wind, it becomes a picture. It becomes a description of their time. But this picture also portrays the same struggles that we have with faith and doubt. I mean, think of the ways and times in your life when, when this could be said of you. See, the world, what it does is the world, it discards. It has little use for people who struggle. But God says in your struggle, that's where you're most likely to understand the sufficiency of my grace. Once you figure out that you can't do it, on your own, God says, let me, let me step in and begin this good work in you. It's so telling that Jesus watches from a distance as the followers suffer while on the sea. He can do something about it, but he chooses to wait instead. And the followers watch Jesus while he is on the cross from a distance. They can do nothing about it. And so they wait. The disciples see hungry people and they have no answer. And Jesus sees hungry people and says, I'll use whatever you have because I have compassion on these people. Jesus doesn't just see hungry people. He sees lost people. He is, after all, the Lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. And all we, like sheep, each one of us has gone astray. Hear the call of Jesus this morning saying, follow me. Follow me. Forget about perfection. Forget about merit. Forget about earning. Forget about deserving. Just follow me. You see, the cross, it was the answer to the people who didn't believe in Jesus. But the tomb was God's answer. That he is good. Father, would you open our eyes to see your beauty? Would you open our ears to your truth? Would you open our hearts to understand the message? Holy Spirit, apply this teaching to our hearts. Through Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand, and, 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 and Larry's going to be here, and, and John's going to be over here. And, and, and it's, if you want them to pray with you, if you feel like you are struggling this morning, that you want somebody to know that, yes, I'm in the boat with you. And, and, and even if you're afraid about walking and talking to Larry or walking and, and talking to John, you know, there's other people here. I mean, Lonnie's sitting right there. He'll pray for you. You know, Gene's sitting right there. He'll pray for you. I mean, David Thurman's sitting right there. He'll pray for you. You know, if you need someone to pray for you, Kent's sitting right there. He'll pray for you. If you want someone to pray with you this morning and, and, and you can't make it to one of these, just, just turn to the person next to you and say, I need to know that you're in the boat with me.
Now, this next song is kind of a celebratory song, but that's okay. We can praise and celebrate because we are not alone. Let's sing it. 